Awesome. Thanks, Lex. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Uh, if you're new, um, we've been going through a series in the book of Romans. It's been fantastic. It's been deep. It's been enriching. It's been challenging, exciting, convicting. It's been all of that stuff, freeing and just such a blessing. We've still got quite a few weeks in the book of Romans, but we are in chapter 12 still this week. I know Howard touched on uh, the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 last week, and we're going to pick up basically from where he left off. But a few things just to note quickly. This passage that we're going to be dealing with in Romans is somewhat easier to understand than some of the passages we've been through. Right, all the way from chapter 1 through to chapter 11, I said it last time I shared, if you can get through those passages, those chapters in Romans, you can get through just about anything in God's Word, because they are so deep, so rich, so theological, and so challenging. This week, it's not that it's not deep, it's just easier to understand. And what Paul is doing, what the whole book of Romans is about, is this unpacking and this exposition of the gospel. You know, he starts off right in chapter 1, if you remember, if you're here with us, and he defines the gospel in bullet point form, and then he spends um, some time unpacking the gospel for us, as he mentions it in the beginning. It's the whole book of Romans, and he's still doing that here in chapter 12. Paul hasn't taken a break from unpacking the gospel. He's still unpacking it. But what he's focusing in on in chapter 12, verse 9, to, verse 9 to 21, is God's love and authentic Christianity and authentic Christian love and how we are supposed to, in light of the gospel, be loving people. And Paul's, Paul's hammering home what authentic Christianity looks like when you've been impacted by the good news of Jesus. He's focusing on how God changes our lives and how we can love in a way never before possible without the Spirit of God. So he's going, hey, Christians love in a certain way. This is what it looks like. And then he begins to unpack it. For Paul, he knows 100% that the gospel reconciles us to God. And if you've been in that place, if you're in that place where you know Jesus, you'll know with absolute certainty that something changed in you and in your heart when you came to know Jesus. And this is what Paul's speaking about. It's this love and this ability to love like you've never loved before. I think one of the most practical things you can, you can do is, is um, as a Christian to find out whether you're intimately involved with Jesus or not and to find out whether you're in the place where you should be with regards to your love for others is to ask yourself this question, Am, am I growing in love and intimacy with my family? Am I loving them in ways that I've never before? Am I, am I loving my brothers and sisters in the church? And am I loving people who, for me, before weren't lovable? Am I loving my enemies? Am I loving people counterculturally, right, in a way that the world doesn't say is normal? I think those are some really good questions to ask ourselves, and they are check marks to be able to just use to evaluate where we're at with Jesus and, and whether we're really living a spirit-filled gospel life. And so Paul, in this really like rapid-fire fashion, lists a whole bunch of things that sincere love looks like. We're going to read that and spend a little bit of time unpacking that this evening. So let's read together. Chapter 12 in Romans, verse 9 to 21. Here's what Paul says. He says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, 
Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We really could spend weeks and weeks, like with every other passage we've unpacked in Romans, just preaching through this passage. But before we unpack it tonight, I just want to let you know that although it's really simple, it's one of those really simple passages to understand, it's actually quite difficult to know how to break it up to be able to preach it well. There's so many different ways that you can tackle this. And part of the reason why is because Paul gives, like I said, just this machine gun fashion series of practical commands for us to, to, to adhere to and to consider and to make sure are apparent in our lives if we call ourselves Christians. And, and some people take it and they break it up quite neatly and they go, the first part of, of, of what we've just read is about how we love people in the church. And so we speak about it as loving those in the church. That's from verse 9 to 16. And then they go, and then the other part, verse 17 to 21, is all about how we love people outside of the church. And that would be easy enough to do if it wasn't for verse 14. That sort of makes it a little bit more complicated. And so there are so many different ways to approach this and to preach this message. But this is what I felt the Lord wanted us to do tonight. And I just want to say this. I think we can keep it simple and just go, this passage, verses 9 to 21, speaks about how Christians should be loving in general. Some of it does apply to brothers and sisters in the church, and some of it applies specifically to people outside of the church. But there are times in the church where we're hurt by brothers and sisters. There are times when you are persecuted from within the church. There are times where evil comes to you from within the church. And so to, to break it up sometimes is a little bit unhelpful and to go, this is only how you love within the church, and this is how you love outside of the church. I think it's better to go, hey, this is how God wants us to love, and that's it. Right? That's how God wants us to love. So instead of breaking it up into two or three nice, neat chapters or passages or main points, which is okay to do, we're just going to look at one heading tonight, and this is the heading, biblical love. One, one heading, and we're going to have 10 sub-points, and don't worry, we're not going to expound every point in great detail. We will stop and take some time to have a look at them, but we're sort of going to preach this as Paul wrote it in quick succession, stopping very shortly to look, and I think the idea is that we get and we walk away with a big picture concept and with Paul's main point, and that's this. Because of the gospel, we love extravagantly, unconditionally, and counterculturally. That's, that's Paul's main point here. And here's what I know is going to happen, because it happened to me as I was preparing this. God is going to challenge you. Some of these points are going to be like, yeah, I got that down. 
I really see God doing that. Not, not in an arrogant way, but I really see God doing that in my life. And you're gonna be able to celebrate that. And then there are gonna be points where you're gonna be deeply challenged and convicted. And I wanna say, allow the Lord to do that. Because as these different points challenge us, so we're gonna be able to refine our love for God, our love for each other, and become more like Jesus. Amen? All right. So biblical love, what must biblical love be according to this passage? What is it? Number one, biblical love must be without hypocrisy. Paul just simply says, let love be genuine. The reason why Paul writes that is because he knows that we have this tendency to become hypocritical in the way that we love. What does he mean? He means that although we can face to face tell someone we really love you or affirm our love for them, on the inside we can still be filled with bitterness and hatred and malice and envy and strife. And so we can actually sometimes be a little bit like Judas who epitomized hypocritical love when he kissed Jesus on the cheek and at the same time betrayed him. And I think we can be like that sometimes. And Paul's challenging us. He's going, real biblical love, when you've got the gospel, doesn't do that. And what Paul is saying is not that you should either be like hateful or loving. What he's saying is if you find yourself in a place where you're dealing with hate but you're pretending to love, deal with your heart Repent of this stuff and love somebody. Love them authentically. I found this really interesting. I had no idea where the word sincere came from, but I found out in my studies. Right? The word sincere comes from two Latin words, which means without wax. I was like, it's a terrible thing if you're a surfer, right? <laughs> without wax. And it's a terrible thing here too, right? What used to happen is the dishonest merchants used to sell pottery and pots particularly, and the pots used to get cracks and holes in them. And so what they would do is they would fill the cracks and the holes with wax, and then they would glaze over it. Right? And then you would take the pot home, and the purchaser would find out that their pot was useless, and there were no slips in those days, and no tracking people, and all video cameras and whatever to, to bust the baddie, right? And so you'd be stuck with a pot that you've paid for that's useless, because as soon as you put something hot in it, or as soon as it cracks, or as soon as you know, the wax gets old or the glaze cracks, you'd find out that the pot leaks and it was worthless. So what honest potters would do, or honest merchants would do, is they would stamp on their pot, sincera, which just means without wax, right? And so here's what Paul is saying we need to do, love without wax. Right? Don't, don't, don't try and plug the holes in your heart that so desperately need to be filled with the love of God. Pretend that it's whole and then love other people. The way we love people is by loving them sincerely, genuinely, the way that God loves us. You're never going to come face to face with Jesus and be taken aback because all of a sudden you realize his love wasn't sincere. No, it was sincere and deep. And God's going, we need to love other people like that. Biblical love is authentic. It's sincere and it's motivated by the fact that the gospel has got a hold of us. That's what Paul's saying here. So if you've got the gospel, you love sincerely. Number two, biblical love must be holy. Must be holy. Paul says this, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. As we look at the second half of verse nine, we see that genuine love includes a hatred for evil. And I think we can be a little bit provocative and come up with a slogan that says, Genuine love hates. Because that's what Paul's saying here. Genuine love actually hates some stuff. In the scriptures, God says he hates stuff. 
are the things God hates. And if we've got the gospel, and if we're going to be loving authentically, if we're going to be loving the way God calls us to love, we're going to be people whose love is holy. In other words, our love is not this passive, weak love that doesn't confront the evils and the wickedness of this world and doesn't sit back when it should be calling out things that are ungodly, but rather it's actively engaged in seeking out righteousness and opposing wickedness. We should, every single one of us, as we sit before the Lord, as we contemplate what God has done, as we read the scriptures, have in us this, I think discontent's a softer word, but a real hatred and a discontent for the evil in this world. And it's not to say that we hate the sinner, but the sin that destroys. And you know it in your own life if you've come to know Jesus. When you see Jesus in your sin, there's this point where you're overcome with the fear of the Lord. And that's why the grace of God is so good. But you end up hating the sin. It's distasteful. God says we need to abhor this. True love abhors what is evil. I think it's so important, especially with our teenagers, I had the blessing of being able to speak into their lives. I do it with my children at home. I emphasize all the time that true love doesn't just accept everything. I think there's this tendency nowadays in, in our culture to make people feel bad or to label them as intolerant when you don't love someone enough to accept them for who they are no matter what they do. And I think it sounds good when you say it like that because we do love people and accept them for who they are no matter what they do. But there's a place where God's saying genuine love needs to speak up and speak out and call things for what they are and not just let people slide by and engage in stuff that's going to ultimately be deadly for them. Some of the deepest, most profound moments in my life have been moments that I've absolutely hated where people have come and gone, Roland, I love you enough to tell you that that thing you're doing, my boy, is stupid. Like that, that thing's really not godly or that thing's really going to end up and it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause hurt. It's, it's dangerous for you to go down this road. People have loved me enough to call out the wickedness and to go, this is not good. And I think sometimes under the guise of love, we're actually just pushing people and loving them into hell. And God goes, genuine love, sincere love abhors evil. Just because some people call good things evil and evil things good doesn't make it such. There is an objective standard, and his name is Jesus. And so we look at Jesus and we go, there is good and there is wickedness. And genuine godly love, Paul says, is something that appreciates the goodness in a person's life, but loves them enough in such a way that you're able to go, this thing is not good. I want to love you enough to tell you that. It's not judgmental, it's not hypocritical, it's not assuming the role of God, it's just assuming the role of those who follow Jesus. The next thing is this, biblical love must be brotherly. Number three, love one another with brotherly affection. In this section, Paul uses the word Philadelphia, which just refers to a brotherly love. It's a type of love that David had for Jonathan, that they loved each other so deeply. In other words, when it comes to, to loving like God wants us to love, Christians should, should resemble a really tight-knit, close family group. 
I had a friend uh, in, in primary school, his name was Sean, and I used to love going to his home. My parents were divorced when I was a lot younger, and I was four, and so I didn't have that blessing of growing up in a home where mom and dad were together and there was security. So I used to go visit my friend Sean. I loved it, one, because he lived on a farm and he used to get up to all sorts of nonsense. Um, but two, because his parents loved the Lord, he had a big family. And they just loved each other. It was unbelievable. I knew that Sean was my friend, but don't cross one of his family members. And it wasn't that he would get angry. It was just that he would stick up and defend and protect. And all the family members would do that for one another. And so in some ways, I felt safe there because I felt part of the family. But in other ways, I deeply appreciated and longed for the unity that they had in my own life. And here's the thing. When I came to know Jesus, instantly it happened like that. There was this relationship that I had with people, brothers and sisters, in the church that I didn't even have with my own family who didn't know the Lord. And so Paul's saying one of the marks of genuine Christianity is that you, by the Spirit, love people that possibly you haven't even met simply because you share God our Father. And I say simply, but it is the most extravagantly, most complicated thing to understand that the God of all the heavens and the earth could love us and call us sons and daughters, and that we are brothers and sisters. And in some ways, this is what Paul's saying. He's suggesting that as believers, we should have tighter relationships with each other than we do sometimes in a lot of ways with our own blood relatives and family. Because at the end of the day, relationship ties break down when we die. Marriage doesn't exist in heaven. Blood relationships here are dissolved and we're united because of Jesus as brothers and sisters. So Paul's going, we, we need to love each other in that way. There needs to be a unity amongst us that when the world looks at, they long for and they desire. Fourth one is this. Biblical love must be selflessly humble. Paul says, undo or outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What these three verses hammer home is that biblical love is humble. It's humbling. We live out humility because love has got our hearts. Jesus was never proud and haughty. Jesus never lorded it over people. Jesus always associated with the lowly and the least of these. Jesus sought not to gain honor and praise, although he was do it, but he gave it and he encouraged and he loved people. And here's what Paul's saying we should do. We don't wait around doing stuff so that people can see and then expect them to praise us. Because I think sometimes we can get into that habit of doing things so that people can see, so that we can be honored and be encouraged and be praised because there's a need in our heart that needs to be met. And we so desperately want the affirmation of men. God says in his word through Paul to us that when your heart is filled with the gospel and you love genuinely, your heart will be so full, it just gives to people. There's no need for you to receive accolades and praise from men because that can be such a dangerous trap to fall into. And we've all been there. I've been there 
trust you've been there. Where your desire of your heart starts out pure, but actually at the end of the day, you long to be praised by people. And for me, that's an indication. As soon as I desire that, as soon as I, for example, step off this stage and wonder who's going to come and go, oh, that was a really good word. Or not. I've got to, I've got to check where I'm really at with Jesus. And it's a red flag for me. Wow, something's not right. Let me get back to the feet of Jesus here. Because true love seeks to honor other people. It doesn't mean that we can't accept praise. It doesn't mean that we can't accept honor and that we are falsely humble and go, oh no, it was just Jesus. It, was Jesus. it wasn't me, it wasn't me. And we become those people that's awkward to compliment. You know, we don't want to become those people because there are some people who I'm too scared to go up to and say, wow, you did a really good job because they're going to hit me with the spiritual card and be like, it was just Jesus, bro. Right? That's not what Paul's saying. Let's encourage one another. Let's honor one another, but try and outdo one another. It's like the Japanese. You give somebody in Japan a present, you must know, right? They're going to give you one back and bigger. And then you're obligated to go buy a bigger one and give that back to them. That's just their culture of honor and how it works. Paul's going, this is what we need to do with one another. That's how you know godly love has got a hold of your heart. The gospel's got a hold of you. You're not, you're not trying to blow smoke up someone's pants or skirt, right? Forget who used that phrase, but like falsely, what, what, is, what is the word? It is like, it's manipulation, right? Spiritual manipulation. You're not, you, you, you're not trying to do that. What you're trying to do is genuinely honor them. And here's what I find happens when you do that. Paul doesn't say this, but I've learned this. When you're able to honor someone and you seek to honor them, you're able to receive from them what God has put in them through the Spirit. As soon as I'm sitting, looking at someone, envying them, unable to honor, or trying to manipulate them by saying stuff I don't really mean because I actually want them to say something back that I need. As soon as I do that, I can't receive from them what God has put in them to receive. But as soon as I'm able to sit back and go, wow, God, I love this person. Thank you for their gift. I want to honor them, and I want to tell them that as soon as that happens, you position yourself in a place spiritually where what that person carries is able to be transferred to you. And that is such a blessing. Paul instructs us not to be proud. He says this biblical love doesn't tolerate relationships that are full of strife and turmoil. It doesn't mean we cut them off. It just means we can't sit and linger when we know that there's a problem with a brother or sister or with somebody outside of the church even. I know people who lie awake at night because they have debt. They lie awake at night because they're not climbing the corporate ladder. They lie awake at night for a whole bunch of different reasons. I lie awake at night because we've got children, right? <laughs> but one of the things that really gets at people's hearts is this idea of a relationship not being right. There's a problem when there's a relationship that you have with somebody that's divided and broken because of strife and malice and maybe some sort of hurt, and you're able to go to bed peacefully without you having tried to do something about it. There's so many personal examples of where I've learned this lesson hard. When our children were young, if you've been there, you'll know you don't really sleep much and you become incredibly ratty. And no matter how godly you think you were, you realize you're not. And I remember one of my very close pastor friends phoned me the one day because I was late for a meeting or I hadn't come to a meeting. I was trying to explain to them why I wasn't coming to a meeting. And they didn't even, they just asked why, and I lost it, right, I was just like, 
this reason and that reason. Just, and I still said to him, just give me some grace, man. I didn't really shout, but I got incredibly stern and it was not good. And I remember putting the phone call down or the phone down and going to Mandy and going, I'm such a wicked, wicked man. Right? This is just, what, what is this? And I remember feeling really terrible about it. And for two days, I left it. And it was awkward for me to pick up the phone until I suppose he couldn't take it any longer. And it wasn't his fault, but he phoned me. And I picked up the phone and it was him. I was like, oh, I'm so glad you phoned. He was like, I'm so glad you picked up the phone. Right? And he was just like, I want to say sorry for anything I've done to offend you. And I was like, you've done nothing to offend me. And I was like, dude, I, I just lost it because I hadn't got any sleep. And I'm sorry, this was not your fault. My bad, totally. Please forgive me. I think he even cried on the phone. It wasn't a massive thing, but it was enough to make me go, this relationship strained. And in that moment, there was just this, it was an overwhelming love for one another that developed. And this ability to reconcile. And this, this, this thing that Paul's saying is just so true for me in that time that genuine love doesn't allow strife or turmoil to linger in a relationship. That's how you know you've got the gospel. That's how you know you've got Jesus. When it's not acceptable for you to just leave it. Paul says, associate with the lowly. What he's really getting at here is don't distance yourself from people who are a nothing in society, where the world says you're a nothing, you're nobody, there's no, no, no notoriety, you haven't really achieved much, you're a no, don't, don't distance yourself from those people and associate only with those who are highly acclaimed. That's not biblical love. Jesus did it the other way around. And sometimes we can want to connect with people and name drop because it somehow makes us feel better. But I know this person, I'm friends with that person, or we look for the seats of honor. Jesus says, associate with the lowly, because the Lord sees. And he can also mean, and I, I, I think this is included in there, don't, don't be so proud that you don't allow yourself to do the menialest of tasks, the simplest of tasks, and the lowliest of tasks. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He's saying, don't be so proud that you can't do even the simplest, smallest, unnoticeable things for the Lord. Don't be proud. Then last he says here, make sure that it is, as far as it is in your ability, make sure that you're able to live peaceably with people. You're not always going to be able to live peaceably with people. We live in a broken and wicked world, but you mustn't be the reason why you're not living at peace with people. And that's going to require huge humility because sometimes you're going to have to say sorry when you're not wrong just to keep the peace. And God's going, when you've got the gospel, that happens. Fifth one is this, and the rest are going to be a lot quicker, I promise. Biblical love serves the Lord. He says, do not be slothful in zeal or fervent. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Simply put, don't be lazy. Biblical love is not lazy. So often that first love, that zeal for Jesus is quenched because we become apathetic and lethargic in our relationship with Jesus. Biblical love keeps boiling over with zeal and fervor for the Lord and for other people. We don't become self-absorbed people who just sit in the pews and expect to be served, but we serve Jesus over and over and over again. Sixth one, biblical love perseveres. The ESV says this, 
We are patient. Biblical love is patient in tribulation. What Paul doesn't mean is that we sit passively by while we're being persecuted. What he means is that even though we're being persecuted, we don't sit back and take the proverbial chill pill, but we keep on with life. We keep going. We keep pressing on. We keep pushing towards that goal. We keep working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We celebrate when we're persecuted. We celebrate and we persevere in tribulation because we know that we're suffering with Jesus. We're, coming, we're becoming like Jesus when that happens. Biblical love drives you and stirs you on and empowers you to be able to live a life that when the world looks at it, they go, that's not normal. That's not normal. Biblical love produces a steadfast endurance. The seventh one is this. Biblical love blesses and does not curse. Bless those who persecute you, Paul says. Bless and do not curse them, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on their heads. We all know if we're honest with ourselves, that it is really, really difficult to speak well of somebody you dislike. That it's really difficult to sort of honor and love and genuinely honor and love somebody you have an issue with or, they, or who they have an issue with you. It's such an easy theory to consider, but practically it's really difficult. That's why it's part of what biblical love really is because when you're able to do this, when you're able to bless somebody and not curse them, something supernatural is happening in your life. And it is such a freeing thing to be able to do. I'll share this example of my stepfather. We didn't have a really good relationship for a very, very long time. And then I came to know Jesus and it was during that time I'd just come to know Jesus that he went into hospital and almost lost his life, but he was in hospital for a very, very long time. And I spent my life cursing him. Right? I spent ages hating him right? and not getting along well with him at all. And then this one moment in the hospital, I remember sitting there and praying for him. And the Lord just freed me and released me to be able to speak life over him and to tell him that I love him and to tell him about the good stuff that I did see in him. I don't know if he was able to actually comprehend what I was telling him, but I know this, God was freeing me. He was freeing me, he was freeing me all the time. This love had got my heart. And it's not this soft, cushy love, it was this real, deep, powerful, freeing thing. And it didn't just stop there. It wasn't a moment of like ecstasy or some you know, crazy emotional hop that I'd stirred myself up into. I had gone there because I thought it was gonna be the last time I was gonna see him. And I thought, let me just go and honor this man. I don't want to be the one guy who didn't go to the hospital. I didn't want to be there. But while I was there, the Lord started to challenge me with my heart towards him. And I was able to bless him and not curse him. And I found this out to be true, that when you bless because the gospel's got a hold of your heart, it is far more powerful than cursing somebody. Far more. It didn't just stop there. It carried on. My relationship with him changed, and I was able to love him genuinely. But it's really difficult it was one of those things that I'd ask God to help me to work on. God, I want to love like this. I want to bless and not curse. And Paul gives a really, really, really awesome reason for doing this. Not only because it sets you free, but because it heaps burning coals on the enemy's head. Now, 
It might sound weird to think about that. Like, wow, that doesn't sound like a good thing to do to somebody. And it's probably not a good thing to do to somebody. But here's what he's saying. is when you repay evil with evil, that's what the world does. But when you pay evil back with blessing, what that does is it renders your opponent stuck because you don't quite know how to compute being paid back blessing when you've given evil. And the burning coals, that's akin to feeling really shameful and remorseful for what you've done. And it may even lead someone to repentance. There's that scripture earlier on in Romans where it says, don't you know that the kindness of God leads us to repentance? That's what Paul's saying is so significant about this. A guy by the name of James Denny wrote this as a theologian. He said this, the meaning of heaping burning coals on someone's head is hardly open to doubt. It must refer to the burning pain of shame and remorse which a man or woman feels whose hostility is repaid by love. This is the only kind of vengeance the Christian is at liberty to take. If you want to avenge yourself, love people. If you want to avenge evil, love and give back the way that God gave to you. Number eight, biblical love is sympathetic. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. The amazing thing I've found about biblical love, when I'm, when I'm really, when I'm walking close with Jesus, I am really able to rejoice with people who are rejoicing and then leave that place and go into a situation where people are mourning deeply. I think being in the past that you see this more often, you're able to go and celebrate a marriage with somebody. You're able to get to be part of marrying people and celebrating that. And then maybe two or three days later, you're doing somebody's funeral or a family member's funeral. And biblical love enables you to be sympathetic in the sense that you're, in, you're really, not faking it, you're really enjoying this moment and loving life with the people that are getting married or celebrating the birth of a new baby or someone being healed of a sickness for a long time, you're able to celebrate that. But then you're able to go in the same way and deeply connect with people who've lost a loved one who suffered with an illness for a long time. Or a family that are going through a divorce. Or with friends who've lost a loved one. Tragically. You're able to sympathize. And what that does is it puts you in a place where you're able to see people the way Jesus does. And you get this understanding of the heart of God and how he's able to both, on one hand, celebrate his people and love people, and on the other hand, be so angry with some of the sin in this world. And just there's this joy that comes from being able to connect with people and be sympathetic. Biblical love is not a love that takes someone's joy and rubs it in the face of someone who's weeping. But biblical love also enables us not to take someone's mourning and quench someone's joy. So I think that can happen as well. We all live in different seasons and we're all in different seasons in our lives. Biblical love helps us to be able to really come alongside and partner with our brothers and sisters and people outside of the church in a way that shows the love of God. And I find that to be amazing. Number nine, second last one. Biblical love is not vengeful. Paul says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. I heard somebody say, the Lord said, vengeance is mine, right? And I will pay you back. They were just joking, but I thought it was cool, right? I was gonna try it on somebody one day, but I got convicted. It pretty much goes without saying, right? That if Christian love abhors what's evil, it's, it's counterintuitive to think that you can repay or should repay evil with evil. That's what vengeance is. Paul's not speaking about justice here. Paul's speaking about vengeance. Vengeance is not justice. Revenge and vengeance is about getting evil back with evil. Vengeance perpetrates and perpetuates the cycle of sinfulness. It doesn't kill it. Vengeance is not overcoming sin, but it's being overcome by it. That's what vengeance is. Paul's going, justice is good. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And when he avenges, he avenges justly and rightly according to his righteousness. We avenge out of a, out of a, out of a heart that thinks that we are better than that person or that somehow we can fight evil with evil and it be okay. Last one is this. Biblical love overcomes evil with good. Very simply put, don't let other people's evil acts squash your ability to love them back with good deeds. This is very similar to point number nine. And in point number nine, it's more of a passive, if someone does something evil to you, don't resist them by doing evil. Point number 10 is when someone does something evil to you, resist them by doing good. There's this active involvement and engaging. In conclusion, this is what Paul's main point is. If you've got the gospel, you've got Jesus, and there's a biblical love in you that's possible for you to live out by the power of the Spirit. It's self-sacrificial. It transforms your life, and it transforms the lives of others because that's what the kingdom does. At the heart of everything is the mercies of God. And if you've not experienced what Paul has unpacked from chapters 1 to 11, this isn't possible for you. And so Paul's cry, and I believe God's heart cry for us is if you don't know Jesus, and this sounds exciting to you, and you think it's impossible, just dare to try Jesus. Just dare to approach him and go, God, if this is real, I want some of this. I promise you now. God will meet you where you're at. And it's a place where I think for us as Christians, we need to go, God, I've been deeply challenged by some of these points and I trust that you have been. I wanna bring this to you and I wanna ask you to grow this in me. Let me repent of where I have not lived out biblical love, but cause in me, just cultivate in me a deep desire for more of this love that Paul is speaking about that you've given us to live out in our lives. Right, and we'll see the world transformed. Let's, let's pray together and ask the team to come up. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. God, it is life-giving, it is refreshing, and it is deeply challenging. And God, I want to pray that the power of the Spirit, through the power of the Spirit, God, you would entrench deep in our hearts this this challenge, Lord, to love like Jesus loved, 
to love like you love. And Lord, where the enemy comes and lies to us about this not being possible, about this being a, a pipe dream, God, we rebuke him in Jesus' name. And we say, God, cause in us to rise up this confidence and this faith, knowing that you will do what you promised to do. And that's empower us to walk like Jesus walked. And Lord, where we fall short and where we fall down, God, may we get back up, repent, and walk in forgiveness. But may your people be a people who are marked by the love of the Lord and a biblical love, Lord. I pray that it would flow out of us like streams of living water. And Lord, as we worship you now this evening, I pray may we bring to your feet the things we need to repent of. May we bring to your feet the areas in our lives where we really need to grow, Lord. God, I pray that we'd be a people who challenge the world to see Jesus for who he really is. In your name, amen. Let's stand together. struggling with sense of unforgiveness in their hearts, particularly in response to some of this that was shared in this worship, um, sorry, in the sermon, I, I just feel the Lord does want to release that. Um, if you have issues with unforgiveness, um, so I know the pastors are at the front, but yeah, I just, I also just pray that over you, that the Lord release that over you right now, that unforgiveness. Um, Worthy of every song. 